John's Gospel, chapter 17. While you're turning, let me just remind you uh, of our election on Friday night. Again, if you think you'll not be able to be with us, there are several that have already gotten and returned absentee ballots to me, but if you think you'll need one, uh, please let me know tonight uh, and get that from me. If you can leave it with me, that's good. If not, I can arrange to get it from you during the week. John 17, I want to just read the opening portion of these familiar words. And these words are, well, it's frankly debated among commentators as to exactly where uh, the Lord spoke these words. Uh, It is evident that he spoke them before they entered the garden, Gethsemane. Uh, Some believe that they were uttered um, in the upper room that all of what transpires in chapters 13 to 17 occurred in that room. Uh, Others hold that it's in between the upper room at Gethsemane. I even have seen one suggestion that the temple would have been in between where they had the supper in the city and Gethsemane, and perhaps it was even prayed in the temple environs. I think that's just some conjecture there. Maybe it's a nice thought, a high priestly prayer prayed at the temple. Uh, But some of those questions, and actually there are other questions as to the timing and the sequence of that week that scholars wrestle with. I guess scholars have to get paid to do something. Uh, The devotional value sometimes begins to diminish, and particularly when the importance of solving the questions diminishes. Well, we don't have to know exactly where, uh, whether in the upper room or on the way. But these words, this prayer, obviously uttered in the presence of the disciples for them to to hear, obviously for them to remember. One of the things the Lord said to them in the upper room as He was speaking of the outpouring of the Spirit was that the Spirit would bring all things to their remembrance whatsoever He had said unto them. He's speaking there even of the inspiration of the New Testament Scriptures, the benefits and blessings that would come to them as He ascended to the Father and left them. And yet He said, as we read this morning, with regard to the Spirit, I will come to you. And just see the strength even of the Trinitarian influence we mentioned last week that Ferguson points out. The opening reading this morning I and the Father are one. Philip, have I been so long with you and you've not known me? And then he speaks of his leaving and the Spirit coming, and yet he does it under the language of, I will come to you. And so some of the mystery and the wonder of the Trinity unfolded to these men. But these precious words we read, just the opening of John 17, these words spake Jesus, And lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. I have glorified Thee on the earth. 
I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. We'll end our reading there in verse 5. And again, we trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we have the echo of the phrase, why was I a guest? It comes to our hearts as we consider this emblematic meal. As we look forward to that glad feast above, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we pray that you help us as we prayed in our opening moments together this morning. That in this Lord's day, you would lift us above the Lord, the details and the, the busyness of life here. That we might be again reminded of that eternal perspective and that eternal day. And we pray that you will be pleased to give even at the close of this Sabbath day warm gospel hearts as we would together remember our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We've read the opening words of what is often called the high priestly prayer. The prayer that is uttered in John 17 really has more claim to the title, the Lord's Prayer, than that that we often speak of as the Lord's Prayer. That prayer is an emblematic prayer. It's one that is a pattern for us to pray. That's a prayer that opens, and you could even pursue the thoughts. It opens with the phrase, Our Father. There's a corporate aspect to the introduction to that prayer. We can pray to the Father as our Father when we are joined with Christ, when we are numbered among His people, when we are among His brethren, those many sons that He brings to glory. But this is, in a more particular sense, the Lord's Prayer. Here He doesn't open and say, Our Father. He doesn't open and say, when ye pray, pray after this manner. He prays. And He speaks and says, Father, the hours come. These words spoken as certainly all the words in the upper room, but this prayer in particular, they're spoken almost as it were in the shadow of the cross. There's a particular solemnity about them. As our Lord utters these words, He comes and there's, there's quite a distinct contrast between well, the prayer of John 17 and the prayer of Gethsemane which follows. And that of course is a prayer again that only Jesus could pray. But there is a, a prayer of agony. There's a prayer of being so overwhelmed that he's asked for disciples to pray for him. 
Here's a prayer of a different nature. It's, it's not a sense of gloom. He knows what is coming. But he has already passed it. He can say in this prayer, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Of course, only a divine person could really speak of something accomplished that is yet in time to happen. But the Lord has a finished work that He lifts up to the Father. Chapter 16 ends, even as He's spoken to the disciples about the trials that will come to them in this world because of their being united to Him. But He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's a familiar phrase. But think of that as a constant mindset when you watch the news. (laughs) Or some of you I know forbid yourselves to do that. Okay, when you read the news or whatever you do. (laughs) Think of that. Have it in mind. Have it be foremost in mind. He has overcome the world. And He is sovereign over all this stuff that's going on. And He will overrule even the wrath of men to praise Him. And He will work all things together for good to us, those that are the called, according to His purpose. But here He prays very personally. And He utters a prayer In many ways, this is the close of His earthly ministry and the beginning of His heavenly ministry. We speak in our doctrinal formulations, and I think rightly so and well and good, of what's called Christ's session. There's a season in which the ascended Christ is in our nature seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us His people. He's seated there until His foes are made His footstool. There's this interval, this period between the first advent and the second advent in which He's calling out of all nations a people for the glory of His name. He's calling out of all nations a people to to build up and bolster that body that will be the bride of His Son. And here, in a sense, is the commencement of that ministry of his session as he prays. Lord Jones speaks of this passage with some remarkable opening comments of some in history that forbid themselves to preach upon it because they sensed it was too deep, too solemn. He speaks in another place of what Christ outlines here is the plan of salvation. And he laments that it's a phrase that had become so watered down in his generation that it was almost emptied of real meaning. And yet there is a plan. There's an eternal purpose that has been entered into by the three persons of the Godhead in that covenant of redemption that we speak of. And Christ even brings out one of the aspects of that covenant. That a people were given to Him that in their behalf He has finished this work. And He shares that as He begins to pray and has His disciples witness this prayer.
I just want to, from the opening words we've read, put before you, what is Christ's petition? What's He asking for as He unfolds this prayer? There are pieces of the prayer that are hard for us. We, we see at one point it seems quite evident it must be that all of His people are in view. And there's another point in which he's, He singles out the disciples and He speaks about these that will go forth and others that will believe on Him through their Word. Obviously, that part can't refer to the whole church because there's parts of the church that are going to believe through those He's praying with and for. But obviously, these opening phrases are inclusive of us all. And His petition here is this, Father, the hour has come Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee, as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. There's an ultimate glory of God that is Christ's petition. That the Father would be glorified is... What he's praying for, that's, that's the end of his prayer. And yet there's a means to that end. That this glory of God that will be known will be, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, broadcast, as it were, through the heavenlies for principalities and powers to witness and to glory in forever. There's a glory of God that has been accomplished, that's been made known. And in order for this glory to be manifested, the Son must be glorified in the salvation of the people that were given to Him. And Christ is praying simply, Father, I've finished the work that You gave me to do. The hour has come. We could go through the Gospels and have a, a whole column of references where it was said that His hour was not yet come. It was not for that crisis to be brought at another person's appointment. It was to be given to Christ by His own appointment. And that hour's come. We've read and considered that these last two Lord's Day mornings. He has confounded the Jews. Their unbelief, even as unreasonable as it is, has been put on display. They will not hear. And He says, I'm finished with you. You'll not hear Me or see Me anymore. And then these that hate Him seek a means to find Him in the absence of the multitude. And our Lord knows that, well, what the rest of this night will hold and what the next day will be. And again, it's not just the, the anger of the Jewish leaders. He's known that throughout His ministry. It's not just now the Romans are getting involved and things are going to get really tough. Torture and then death by crucifixion designed to be agonizing. 
Those, as we say, are just the attending circumstances. What he really knows he's there to do. What hour is now upon him is bearing the wrath of God against our sins. But he does so with expectation. He does so joyfully. I used to say that I can't get through communion without quoting Hebrews 12, but I think there's been a long line of them now that I haven't quoted it, so I return to the pattern. There was a joy that was set before him. And it was with a mindfulness of that joy that he endured the cross. He didn't count the shame. He didn't count the suffering. He didn't count bearing the weight of the wrath of God against our sins. A weighty enough thing to pray at this time, Father, I can't finish. I've changed my mind. A people were given Him. And He would purchase them. He would bring them to the presence of the Father that God would be glorified in the work of the Son in providing salvation for His people. This is one of those things that we've known so long. It is so familiar to us that it's easy for us to be more occupied with things going on in life. And these demand our attention. I bring again to you these familiar phrases we use. The world, even in these legitimate parts of life, demands our attention. But where are our affections? Where is the real me holding residence, as it were? Am I conscious on Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday midday that I'm a citizen of heaven and this has been purchased for me by the blood of Jesus? I have been forever united to Him in the covenant of grace. And these aren't just Fantasies, they're not just the imaginations of ancient religious guys. This has been worked out for us in history by the eternal Son of God. And here he prays, Lord, glorify yourself. Get the glory due unto your name. By glorifying the Son and the Son finishing the work that you gave Him to do. We can look at salvation think about all the stuff, as it were, that we get. We escape hell. That's good. We get to go to heaven. I hear there's golden streets there and pearls that are really big. You know, gates, one pearl. 
These are just the attending circumstances of glory. The presence of God is what glory is all about. And He has purchased that for us. As we come tonight to the table, as we come a little closer to the agonies of Gethsemane and the crucifixion of that next day, let us remember Jesus prayed that God would get glory through the success of the Son's work in saving His people. It's not just the stuff we get. It's the glory of God and His wisdom, His power, His purpose, His love in saving the likes of us who didn't deserve to be saved. And yet with such desire, He has chosen to save us anyway. Let these things fill our minds as we tonight partake of the elements together.